0: Good morning. Good morning. My name is Alex. I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and this morning we're continuing with our hits from the 1980s as we continue to have some fun here in the gym while we wait for our sanctuary renovations to be finished. I'm not sure if you knew this, but our congregation rented this gym back in 1980 from University Village Public School, and this is the room in which we started to worship. So we just listened to a song from roughly 1980, a song by In Excess called Original Sin. Now, my kids would say that, uh, Dad, back when you were a teenager listening to music, back in the medieval era, probably all songs referenced Original Sin, but no, that's actually not the case. This was, this was quite a rare thing. And the song is quite insightful, actually. In Excess, link Original Sin to Playing With Fire. And then, incredibly, we get a reference, which seems like it may be to the passage we're looking at this morning. But did you know of the murder committed, they sing. So, in excess seems to be pointing to the story of Cain and Abel. What a pity, they say, which is a huge understatement. And then the chorus dreams of a world without racism. Dream on white boy, dream on black girl. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we did a recap of the first three chapters of Genesis, this foundation to all of Scripture, uh, this incredible beginning to the Bible that really sums up our faith in all its most important components. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off and see how original sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 plays out. Before we open our Bibles, though, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do what we were singing earlier as we listen to your word and as we seek to understand it. Would you turn our eyes upon Jesus? Show us his beauty, his truth, and his grace this morning, we pray. Amen. So we're reading Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Then the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. This week I finished reading The Book of Negroes by Lawrence Hill. Maybe some of you have read it. I I picked it up because Callum has been reading it for his grade 12 English class. It's the incredibly moving story of Aminata Diallo, who was kidnapped in Guinea, West Africa, around about 1750, and sold into slavery, and then traveled to South Carolina, New York, Nova Scotia, and eventually to her freedom. There are many ways to explain slavery. Political, economic, sociological, psychological. But, you know, in the end, every single explanation for why slavery happened is inadequate in the face of such pure evil. I think as Christians, we have an explanation that runs deeper and that can satisfy. The Christian explanation for why we fight, why we kill each other, why we enslave one another is summed up by the word sin. It's a word that starts to make sense of a world gone mad. It's an unpopular word, but it's a word that holds out the key to self-knowledge and to freedom as we enter into relationship with God. In Genesis 4, we see the effects of the original sin. And we're going to learn more about sin this passage, and as we reflect on it, we will see that sin is first of all lethal, Secondly, that sin is sneaky. And finally, that sin will not prevail. How do you like that for a sermon title heading, Lessons in Sin? But sin is so important for us to go deeper in our understanding of. And I worry that it's something we would rather avoid even in the church. There is no way to God unless you understand your sin and confess it. So, first of all, sin is lethal. In verse 7, we have this amazing image for sin. God says to Cain, But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And so you have a picture of a tiger or a leopard crouching in the shadows, ready to pounce. On its next victim. God is telling us that sin is lethal. It's coming after us. It's predatory. Sin isn't just an action, something you do and then it's over. It's a force, it's a power, it's to be reckoned with. When you sin, it actually becomes a presence in your life. It takes shape, a kind of shadow shape, and it stays with you and influences you. And eventually, it will do you in. Like any habit, you notice the things we do become easier to do again and easier to do again and again and harder to stop doing. One thing we pray for ourselves and for our children is that we will be sensitive to the presence of sin in our lives and in their lives. We want to feel the wrongness of something like telling a lie. We want to feel the wrongness of taking something that isn't ours. Of justifying actions that are ungodly because we deserve it or because it feels right. Small sins aren't actually small sins because they open the door to the presence of sin. They give Satan a foothold. I remember one time hearing um, a very well-known Christian speaker, someone of the highest stature share in the talk they were giving that they had lied just that previous week to their spouse about something very trivial, something that didn't matter. They just lied. And the lie that they told, they went on to describe that it wouldn't have done any real damage to their spouse. It wasn't a big deal. That's how their mind was processing it. But as the days went on, they realized that it would do damage to their own soul and to the marriage relationship if they started accepting those small lies, those white lies, those little things, those half-truths, if they started accepting that those were a part of their everyday interaction. And so sin is right at the door, waiting to pounce. Another way of looking at this is that when you sin, the sin doesn't just go away. The sin becomes a presence in your life. You start by doing sin, and then sin undoes you. You can decide, for one example, that you're not going to forgive someone who has hurt you. You're not going to forgive your father. You're not going to forgive your mother. You're not going to forgive them for what they've done. Now, that refusal to forgive is a sin. But it's not just a sin you've done. It's a sin that will undo you because it's going to poison your relationships with other people, not just in that one moment, in that one circumstance. It's going to affect your whole network of relationships in ways you may not even perceive. It will harden your heart. You can see this difference already in the family we're starting to track with in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve, and now we've got Cain and Abel. In Genesis 3, when God went to Adam and Eve and asked them, what have you done after they ate the forbidden fruit? At least they knew their guilt. You remember how they scrambled. Adam blamed his wife. Eve blamed the serpent. But here in Genesis 4, God comes to Cain and says, what have you done? And Cain answers, hey, am I my brother's keeper? Why should I care? There's a hardening that's taken place. First, you start to do sin, and then sin will undo you. It becomes a presence in your life. It begins to shape you. The second thing I think we learned about sin here in Genesis 4 is that sin is sneaky. You see, the lion, the tiger, the leopard is crouching. And that's incredibly significant. That means that... It's down away, out of your sight. Why? Well, because if you see a crouching tiger, you have a chance, a chance to get away. But if you don't see the tiger waiting for you, you're dead. The less aware you are of the location or the reality of the crouching animal, the more vulnerable you are. What that means is that the worst things in your life, the character flaws that you try to hide the sins in your life that are ruining you and hurting others are the things that you will not admit to. They're the sins you're in denial about, that you rationalize and minimize. By definition, those are the crouching sins in your life, the ones that are going to undo you. As long as you look at your grudges against people as justified grievances As long as you look at your greed and your materialism as ambition, as long as you look at your pride as healthy self-esteem, you're vulnerable. You're in denial. So what would you say are the crouching sins in your life? And friends, if nothing comes to mind, or if you're ready quickly with an answer that says, no, I don't have any crouching sins, I'm aware of all my sins, then let me break it to you. You are in denial. And we can talk over coffee, perhaps. (laughs) In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, we read, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And you know who gets devoured? The ones who separate from the herd are always the first to go. We need Christian community if we're going to have a hope of knowing our crouching sins and of mastering them. You need to be in relationship with others who know you well enough to pray for you in the ways that matter, who know you well enough to support you and love for you, and yes, also to challenge you. Back in the spring, uh, in a sermon, I shared a personal story about a close friend of mine. A friend for 20 years who hurt me deeply by criticizing me in a way that was unfair. We sat down together in a coffee shop in downtown Guelph and he said, from the outset of our conversation, he said, Alex, I could play the truth card or I could play the encouragement card. And I'm like, play the encouragement card, play the encouragement card. That's the one I want. Of course, he chose truth. Except I didn't think it was true. I sat there. Some of you might have just walked out. That's not my style. I sat there. I listened. But inside, I was in turmoil. I was so upset. And when I told this story in a sermon back in the spring, I guess it was a kind of confession. I didn't realize the effect it would have. Because once I told it to you, all of you, there was like a built-in accountability. And so... Even though I said in that sermon, when I told that story, that I knew I should go to him, the next day, I didn't want to. And if I hadn't shared it in a sermon, I, I might not have, actually. But without even knowing it, you held me accountable. Thank you, church. <laughs> and so I met with him. And this is the part of the story you haven't heard. I met with him in the summer. And it was good. We hugged, he asked for my forgiveness, I explained to him why it was so hurtful what he said, and I acknowledged that there was truth to what he had said also. It was hard, and afterwards, I doubted that it had been all that good. You know, in the the moment, your adrenaline's going, and, and it feels like... You just want to get through it. But then afterwards you wonder. But it was good, even though it wasn't the easiest meeting I had with a friend that summer. He had done me a service in the end, even though I still think that maybe he approached it in a way that wasn't the best way. He had pointed out a crouching sin in my life. And my first reaction was to deny it. Who do you have? who can do that for you. If you don't have anyone like that, I would invite you to pray to God this week and in the weeks ahead to lead you to a person who can be a Christian friend, who can shine that kind of a light into your life. I would encourage you to join a small group here at Courtright to step into community. Put in the time, because it's going to take a lot of time it for sure won't happen otherwise. But you need it. You need it for your health, your spiritual health most of all, but other kinds of health as well. And you need it to live the abundant life that Jesus calls us together as his church to live. Not off in our small corners, but together, honestly, vulnerably. When Cain asks, Am I my brother's keeper? He's being sarcastic, he's being evasive, he's being obnoxious. Keeper means to protect, to help, to watch out for. So the answer is yes. We are all meant to be our brothers and sisters keeper. So listen to how the Holy Spirit may be leading you on that path. A part of sin's sneakiness is that it's often not obvious. It's mostly on the inside. So one of the big questions arising from this passage, I think, is why does God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain's? You don't see the difference between Cain and Abel on the surface, right? They're both hardworking. They're both going to church, as it were. They're coming with their offering. The only difference is that one is a rancher and one is a farmer. If you're Abel, you bring the first fruit of the new animals that are born to you. That's your income. If you're Cain, you bring some of the produce of your field. They're both bringing offerings to God. So what's the problem? All we're told is that God showed favor to Abel, which probably means he granted him success, things went well in his life, and he didn't favor Cain. Why would that be the case? Well, I think ultimately it's a matter of the heart. And you have to dig a little bit here into scripture to figure it out. There are hints. We read that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Every year, the income of a rancher is basically how many more animals are born. So if you're smart... You're going to wait and give the Lord his offering after you see how many new animals are born, right? So if you have ten born, then you might give one or two as an offering. But if when the first animal is born, you send it as an offering, what if you only get two others that year? I mean, God doesn't need half of everything I've got. Come on, that is just too much. Let's be reasonable. So you have people who are smart, who only give God what they have to. And then you have people who give freely without calculating. There's a joy to that. There's a trust. And we see that in Abel. We don't see it in Cain. In Hebrews 11, it says that Abel made his sacrifice and offering in faith, but Cain did not. There are only two reasons you can bring an offering to God, an offering of whatever it may be, money, your service, lots of things. (coughs) One of those reasons is you would bring it out of gratitude in response to God's salvation. The other reason is that you do it as a means of getting salvation, as a way of earning God's approval. The way you know the difference is that when God doesn't let things go according to your plan in your life, the Cain's of the world get angry and bitter. Why? Because they actually believe God owes them because of their offerings. They've struck this deal with God, as it were. When you see Cain looking first at Abel and seeing Abel being blessed instead of himself, he becomes murderously angry and he's angry at God. He is so angry at God, he's willing to say, am I my brother's keeper? Which basically amounts to, get out of my face, God. What is the ultimate trust of your heart? Are you looking to other things, other people, to yourself for your salvation? Or are you looking to God? There is no more basic and important question. And how you answer that is going to make all the difference between whether you're an angry, frustrated, bitter Cain, always mad with how the world is going, upset because somebody is getting ahead of you, looking at the Ables around you, resenting them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me remind you of something this morning. Sin is not our destiny. Sin will not prevail. No, it will be overcome. So there is hope, and that is where this passage ends. We see signs of hope here in God's character. We see his grace and his justice. We are not alone in this battle. In John 16, Jesus says, I told you these, these things so that you will have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. And so we follow, we worship the one who has overcome the world. Here in Genesis, there is that kind of hope and grace. God starts by asking questions. He does this again. Remember in Genesis 3, how God didn't show up after Adam and Eve had sinned and say, How dare you eat that forbidden fruit? Instead, He comes and says, What have you done? Where have you been? What is going on? And here, after Cain commits murder, again He shows up and He asks a question. He reaches out. He says, where is your brother Abel? Now, when God asks you a question, I can guarantee you one thing. He isn't looking for information. If God asks you a question, he is not trying to understand your heart either. He already knows your heart. He's not trying to figure out what's going on in your life. He already knows what's going on. If God asks you a question, he's trying to get you to understand your own heart. He's trying to bring you along. And so he says to Cain, I see you're downcast. Literally, God says, your face has fallen, which is a Hebrew way of talking about depression. And so God is coming down and counseling a depressed man here. He's asking him questions. He's pursuing him and he's trying to get him to understand his own heart. Just think about the tenderness of that for a moment. What amazes me is that even though he's telling Cain the truth, he says, look Cain, it's not Abel's fault you're depressed. And it's not my fault. It's your own action and your own attitudes. And he goes on to say, sin is going to master you and I don't want it to rule your life. He doesn't want to see Cain fall prey to sin, to self-centeredness, ultimately to death. That's the grace of God. That's his love. But at the same time, in verse 10, we see something else, something dramatic. God says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, what does that mean? All through scripture, there are places where God says, the innocent shed blood is crying out to me from the ground. We know God is a God of justice. When injustice is done, it cries out to God. God will not overlook it. How in the world can a God of justice save us when we are the ones who have rebelled against him? He wants to save us, but he is perfectly just. How will he ever be able to make good on the promise that we saw in Genesis 3 that he would save the world? Here's how he can be both just and gracious. In Hebrews 12, it says, You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In a sense, Jesus was the ultimate Abel. Because he was the only person who was truly innocent who came into this world. He wasn't angry like Cain. He was beautiful. He was loving. And the Cains of the world couldn't stand it. And they killed him for it. But he did not die only as a victim of injustice. He also died by design. He died in our place. He died to pay the penalty for our injustices, much as we are prone to deny them. In a sense, you can picture Jesus standing before the throne of his father and saying, Father, your law, your perfect holiness demands justice. These people have sinned. The wages of sin, the consequence of sin is death. But for all who believe in me, I have paid for it. And so Jesus says, and this is the music of amazing grace to our ears. Jesus says, my blood now cries out for justice. And he says to his father, justice demands, as I have shed my blood, that you never condemn my brothers and sisters. That is the perfect sacrifice that Jesus himself brings to the Father on our behalf. Everyone who believes in Christ and who says, Father, forgive me because Christ has died in my place. God will never condemn them. Why? Because the blood of Jesus cries out for justice, but the justice is not against us anymore. Rather, it's for us. There was a time in my life when I thought all the talk in the church. I was a baby Christian at the time about the blood of Jesus was kind of gruesome and and kind of weird. Um, But over the years, and I hope you share this sentiment over the years, I've come to see that the blood of Jesus is the most precious thing we have of all. And what it represents is like nothing else gives us hope like nothing else, leads us into the promised land of God's future for us like nothing else. And if you really know you're secure in God's love in Christ, you're not going to be angry, you're not going to be bitter like Cain anymore. I think all of us struggle with that, right? You're not going to be always comparing yourself to other people. You're not going to be resentful because someone else is getting ahead of you, someone who doesn't deserve it. Your identity isn't based on your performance, your status, the things around you, the way you look any longer. And so there comes a security with that, a peace. And by the grace of God, you will be transformed. You'll become like Abel, loving, not angry like Cain. Don't you want that? The world needs a lot more ables. The canes are out there killing each other, exploiting each other, lying to each other. Sin is mastering them. But we have the gospel of the grace of God to enable us to overcome sin and to receive his presence, his goodness, surrounding us. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this gospel, good news of your love for us in Jesus Christ. As terrible as it is to see the blood of Abel crying out from the ground for justice, How amazing that it points to the blood of Jesus crying out that there is no longer any condemnation for those of us who are in him. Lord, would you give us more and more a sense of our security? Let that be the reality that controls us. Let it turn us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus, who did all this for us. Lord, help us to take time this week to listen to you and your Holy Spirit so that we can identify the crouching sins in our lives. Convict us of our sin and help us to take the step of confession and repentance to you and to others involved. May you increase in us as our selfishness and our sinfulness decreases. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.